Welcome back to Hollywood Declassified. I'm John William Law. Thanks for tuning back in with us. We are talking about James Bond this time. Uh, still, we are in this current series on talking about talking about uh, Longitude 78 West um, uh, sort of is the general topic at hand. Um, obviously, if you've listened to the first few episodes, you sort of know we've, we've kind of gone through the, the saga of, uh, of the film, and I've sort of explained the, um, the purpose behind it. But uh, So now I'm going to talk a little more generally about Bond and some of the other things that are kind of interesting about the history of the franchise and some of the different people that have been involved in the, in the roles. Um, and I, I, I've already kind of mentioned uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, and, and what kind of brought me to this, I am a big Bond fan, so I have enjoyed kind of reading about Bond, and I enjoy all the films, and, you know, I think that everyone has kind of their own opinion on them in terms of who they think the uh, quintessential James Bond is, and, and who they think is did the best, and who, which film's the best, and all those things, so um, I think it's, it's always interesting, it's a very subjective thing, um, I think that all of the Bond's uh, actors who have played James Bond have brought something to the role that, uh, that made it uniquely theirs in some way and I think that's something to be sort of applauded and, and I guess maybe even celebrated um you know, I think that it would have been fascinating had Alfred Hitchcock, in fact, directed a James Bond movie. Uh, obviously, he did do a very similar, a couple films, actually, that were sort of very similar to um, to this, to James Bond. They kind of touched on the same kind of theme or celebrated the same type of movie, espionage, spies, that kind of stuff. Um, obviously, he did them way before James Bond even showed up, even before Ian Fleming started writing about him. You know, Alfred Hitchcock was doing films like Le Saboteur and Foreign Correspondent that sort of were, were in that, that event as well. But, um, you know, then North by Northwest, again, uh, they talk about that actually was even an influence on, on Ian Fleming and hers, his spin on James Bond and, and how... Fleming would sort of change James Bond, and it's certainly, if you have read any of the books, and I have, um, you do get a little bit of a different view of James Bond being a, a little darker, kind of more brooding, kind of dangerous kind of guy, and less, uh, you don't get the same level of humor and, and kind of fun that you get from the Bond films. Although I do think that maybe Daniel Craig's James Bond is sort of maybe even more in line with the Ian Fleming character that he created than, than most of the other Bonds. Um, but I think Bond as a, as a franchise where it started with Sean Connery um, was, you know, definitely um, a celebration of, of all the things that, that, that Ian Fleming did well, uh, but also kind of taking it into a kind of theatrical film version that was good for audiences in the kind of 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, Alfred Hitchcock did a couple of films like uh, North by Northwest, again, being an influence in, in that character. Uh, but he also did a couple of other projects as well. So if you look at, um, well, an example, a, not really a good one, but I did mention it in the last one, is that Sean Connery would star in an Alfred Hitchcock film called Marnie. So that sort of was a little bit of an homage or a tie back to Bond because Sean Connery really did want to kind of escape the, the Bond um, kind of legacy that he'd created at the time he felt that it'd become very confining and so doing an Alfred Hitchcock film uh, again Marnie being a very different kind of role a very different kind of film for him um, Hitchcock would step back into the kind of espionage space he did two films uh, one being um, Torn Curtain in, in the 66-67 time frame he would do Torn Curtain with uh, Paul Newman and Julie Andrews and, and Paul Newman does play a he plays a professor kind of scientist guy 
uh, actually a scientist, and he is caught up in a kind of espionage spy uh, spy circle, um, and he doesn't carry off the same debonair, secret agent, dangerous kind of guy that um, that James Bond does, but he certainly does um, offer some of the same kind of, you know, age, looks kind of, you know, storyline, things that he gets caught up in. There's some really kind of great scenes. There's a really great kind of, you know, murder kill scene where, where Paul Newman is fighting the bad guy and he has to kind of uh, kill him in an oven and that's kind of a very uh, hit, very Hitchcock story or very Hitchcocky and scene but at the same time there is a little element of a Bond graphic cruelty to it um, Hitchcock would also do Topaz um, in the latter part of the 60s around the 68-69 period which was also a very specific spy movie and did have agents um, did have a couple of really good kind of action sequences in it was definitely not a Bond movie actually it would it's almost a shame had Hitchcock tried to do a Bond movie it would have been that one um, that would have been the best uh, use of that he could have actually built the story a little more like that um, but uh, it, it didn't pan out that way and they the film is probably not one of Hitchcock's best. Um, but by that point, you know, the Bond series was definitely in full throw and um, was definitely driving the um, the interest in, in this espionage, spy, double agents, secret agents type of stories. And I think that those were the films to kind of uh, kind of try and beat or be like and so and Hitchcock was never one to try and do a film to to be someone else's film or try and match someone else's style or genre so he tried to do his own thing um, the Bond films, I got again by that point, by the latter part of the 1960s, had started to shift and change. Sean Connery, um, having stepped into the Bond role in the early in the early 1960s for Doctor No, um, did quickly become a an international celebrity out of this film series. This really did put him on the map. He had done a few other projects at the time. He'd done uh, like Darby O'Gill and the Little People, and his big introduction to uh, U.S. audiences was a film with Lana Turner called Another time another place and I've written about that story as well and there's a, a long kind of behind the scenes saga story of that where Lana Turner at the time was actually involved with a LA mobster gangster guy by the name of Johnny Stompanato and there was a huge scandal at the time uh, Johnny Stompanato would be uh, killed in Lana Turner's bedroom by her daughter uh, in 1959 uh, but the story that is told to a lot of people was that during another time another place they were filming the movie in London and Lana Turner had actually flown Johnny Stompanato over to kind of be with her even though she was sort of caught up in this kind of abusive relationship that she was trying to end. She ended up being very attracted to him, and so she she brought him over. And he was very jealous of the idea of, of Lana Turner filming on the movie set with Sean Connery. And, and if you really look at kind of pictures or images of Sean Connery at this time and Johnny Stompanato, there's a lot of similarity in terms of their – they were kind of big, handsome guys who were both kind of in terms of their sight – their size in terms of their height and their weight and their build and their dark hair and you know complexion and all that stuff they were kind of very similar in a lot of ways and so you could see how Johnny Stappanato would have been kind of very jealous of the idea of of Sean Connery being Lana Turner's love interest in this film and he showed up on the set and he he basically was came there with a gun to threaten Sean Connery to kind of keep his hands off his his lady and and there ended up being a scuffle and a fight and Sean Connery ended up punching him and knocking him down and uh, jo Johnny Stappanato was kind of carried off the set and by kind of you know uh, security and he was actually escorted and thrown out of the country because he'd come into the country under a false passport and 
Well, a lot of little kind of stuff like that. But uh, when uh, Johnny Stampanato would be murdered uh, a couple of years later, there was a big uh, scandal that the scandal that erupted. Sean Connery was actually in town at the time. He was actually in L.A. doing trying to get a, a work on a film. I can't even remember if it was Darby O'Gill or I think it was. Um, but he ended up kind of going into hiding because there was some threats and ideas that that. Um, you know, that the uh, mob was potentially out to get him, that, that, that he was somehow, you know, tied to or responsible for this kind of incident. So he sort of went into hiding for a while. But Sean Connery after that would then, you know, really come into his own. Obviously, James Bond would be an opportunity for him to really become a, a major name in Hollywood. And it would open a lot of doors for him. But at the same time, it did become a very all-consuming thing. The film series, after the first one, by the second one, it really started to kind of catch fire. Um, so you look at things like From Russia With Love, um, starting to kind of build the momentum. And then you would get films like um, Goldfinger, um, you know, and, and, and Thunderball would really ignite and become the, the biggest moneymakers of the year and of the 60s. They started to really kind of churn in in dollars around the world. They were really, really successful. And Sean Connery started to become really famous, really well known for this. And so he had legions of fans who were following him around. He didn't have any time to kind of, you know, do anything else. He was literally, you know, Bond would would end and the next one would start up and they literally had because they had all these Ian Fleming books and they had contracted to do them once the franchise became a success after Dr. No and they actually did the next one and the next one from Usher with Love I think was the one they um, John F. Kennedy at the time was president had listed the the book the Ian Fleming book as his favorite book of the year as the, the book he'd read the best book that he had read in the last year or something in 1960 I don't know 60 three, I think it was. And so that became, you know, one of the films. And so that really became the series became very, very popular. And so they were doing them constantly on they were literally on on back to back. So and they were big productions in terms of the the amount of effort that went into producing and and filming these productions uh, because of all the action sequences and the international locations and all that stuff, it became a very consuming thing. And they were releasing them every couple of years. So if you look at movies like, you know, um, you know, 62 with Dr. Doe, and then you had kind of From Rush With Love in 63, and you had Goldfinger in 64, and you had Thunderbolt in 65. Um, that was really back-to-back-to-back-to-back work. So Sean Connery really did get worn out, and he was really looking to end it. He had been threatening after, I think, by the time he was doing Goldfinger, he was really at the point where he was starting to kind of focus or realize that this was uh, was really becoming difficult for him to do other things. Um, he did manage to do some other films, so things like Marnie, he was able to kind of get into, um, but he was really limited in terms of the, the amount of work that he could do. Um, and he was actually supposed to do the next movie after uh, after Thunderball was going to be on Her Majesty's Secret Service, but there was some uh, change in that, and I don't know the full story around it. It has something to do with the fact that they really needed this kind of, you know, ski chalet, um, you know, resort area, and the the mountain filming and all that was was an added even challenge for them. So it was going to take longer for them to kind of um, get that that piece of the script and the story and the filming worked out. So they ended up delaying that one a bit and decided to do uh, uh, You Only Live Twice instead because that one was primarily filmed. Well, largely it could it was filmed in Pinewood Studios in, in the UK, which is a, a very 
commonplace for the James Bond movies to be filmed. And um, and there was some location filming, but the location filming would have, was in places like Japan, um, and it was kind of countryside, and it wasn't wasn't as big a deal. They could do some second location shooting, and then they could do a lot of close ups on the studio with kind of a, a film screen of kind of Tokyo or or Japan behind them. So it wasn't as challenging in terms of it to be filmed uh, location wise. Um, so they opted to do that one, and Sean Connery at the time had sort of ended his relationship, decided he was going to stop after, you know, I think the five films or something like that, or at that point, and um, decided not to renew the contract and not come back and do On Her Majesty's Secret Service. So the uh, producers kind of then quickly uh, ended up casting uh, George Lazenby, who was really just a, a male model, but he had the same looks of Sean Connery. He looked very similar again, like Johnny Stampinato is very similar in height and build and in weight and, and physique and his hair color and, and his, even his China jawline and everything. He really did look like he could have been Sean Connery's brother, in fact. And he had signed on for I think even a multi-picture deal and um, had done the film and it was again because it was such a huge success because the Bond series was so so famous at the time and there were so many fans there was a lot of interest in in who this new James Bond was going to be and how successful and how good this film was so all that press had really kind of gotten to George Lazenby and he had sort of listened to a lot of people who said that he had you know a lot a big future in front of him and he didn't need to be tied down by Bond and maybe he should hold out for more money and do these other things and so he ended up kind of abandoning the the um uh, the future of the bond franchise and would um would end up thinking that that was going to kind of work out well for him but it ended up the producers really turned around and went back to sean connery um abandoned George Lazenby, who who never amounted to much as a, in a career as an actor because he'd only done this one James Bond movie and it sort of gone to his head. So didn't really kind of bode well for people to want to hire him. Um, and Bond was never a, a film series that was really kind of known for its acting, you know, so was an action movie. So Sean Connery did agree to come back for, you know, a million plus dollars or something, a really kind of a massive salary at the time. But the producers knew that the Bond franchise would be very successful. They knew the films would do well. They knew that um, that people would gravitate to see the film if Sean Connery was in it. So they had the opportunity to kind of, you know, reignite the film series again by bringing him in. And it also bought them enough time to kind of figure out what their next Bond was going to be because they knew that Sean Connery had agreed only to come back for the one film. And at the time, they ended up going to Roger Moore. And Roger Moore had actually been approached way back years before when they were actually casting Sean Connery. Initially, they had looked at Roger Moore, but Roger Moore was tied up in TV series work at the time in the 1960s. He had done a number of British TV series, including The Saint, and um, was unable to kind of be available to do these Bond films. So uh, they ended up kind of setting him aside and um, he would um, would be available in the the early 70s and would be cast as James Bond. And he did bring a, um, a kind of uniqueness to the Bond series. He didn't hold the same looks as Sean Connery. So there was no attempt to kind of recast him as being the same guy. It was just sort of just it was a new actor playing Bond and he had that sort of gave him an opportunity to kind of do his own thing with the role but I do think that if you look at movies that he had did like uh, Live and Let Die which was the first Bond film that he would do 
um, it was not as successful as the previous Bond films because there was a lot of a lot of skepticism around Roger Moore taking over for Sean Connery, and and some said that that was sort of an impact uh, or a drag on effect to to the success of the film, but. Live and Let Die is a very good film, but it is also, um, you can see if you really watch all the Roger Moore films, you can see the the transition of, of James Bond or the characterization that he would play because the first one was a little more closer to, to the Ian Fleming character as well as sort of the Sean Connery character in that he was a little more dark, a little more brooding, a little more serious, um, yet there was these flashes of kind of humor in them. But then Bond would start to change. So when you started to look at post kind of you'd get the man with the golden gun and then you would start to get into kind of, you know, you only live uh, um, the uh, uh, octopusy and Moonraker and um, uh, for your eyes only uh, these films would um, would start to change and, and James Bond more humor would come into play. So Roger Moore had a little more of a, a, a fun, a fun kind of angle with playing James Bond and he, he didn't approach it with the same seriousness, I guess. And, um, enjoyed the role a little more, I think, and then brought a little more humor to it. And that kind of made it interesting. They also added in a little more, um, seventies kind of kitsch to it. I think in some ways the, the, um, the action sequences and things became so larger than life that the opening sequences became these really kind of um, feats of, of craziness where it was almost impossible that anyone could pull these kind of things off. And, and then they did it with some panache of kind of humor and, and sex appeal to it. And so they were, um, quite interesting but i think that he did uh, shift shift the characterization of uh, of james bond in in those films and that sort of i think by the end when you got to things like uh, view they will kill it started to kind of get a little old and so he was getting old as an actor in terms of playing james bond and um the character was also getting kind of a little older and in terms of that that type of humor and the the character was becoming a kind of like a, a almost like a character of of the original James Bond um so they would end up then looking to replace him and they would go to a, a guy by the name of Timothy Dalton and um you know, in this time, you also have to realize that there was another James Bond that showed up, which we talked about on the previous show, which was Sean Connery coming back. And so in the 1983 time frame, when, um, when Octopussy came out, they released Never Say Never Again. And Never Say Never Again was the, basically another retelling of Thunderball. So if you go back to the original idea that Ian Fleming had when he created Longitude 78 West, which was the originally intended as the first Bond film, and that didn't happen. He repurposed that story and turned it into Thunderball, which would became a book, and then that book would then become a film. And then because of the legal issues that he had, because he had partners in the the original idea of Thunderball, he ended up selling those uh, screen rights to that to Kevin McClory, and Kevin McClory would live with this kind of um, Bond character in this bond story and this he would sign a contract and agreement to not do anything for a number of years and then eventually when that ran out he decided he really wanted to do this james bond and so he would he would launch into kind of trying to do um his version of thunderball so when you watch the film it is basically a retelling of the same story of thunderball um there's a little bit of difference in terms of some of the characters and some of the locations and things but for the most part it is largely the same story um and uh that would be released around the same time uh as uh 
as Octopussy. So um, the films would kind of almost cancel each other out. They said that, you know, the films, neither of them did. They both did relatively well. Um, but um, because I think that at that point, Roger Moore did have a, a definite hold on the, the, the number of Bond films that he had done and his ownership of the character and the role. He had definitely kind of um, inhabited it in a way that he wasn't really threatened by Sean Connery's characterization. And Sean Connery, who had given kind of James Bond life to, on the big screen, didn't have any problem with it either. So I think they but both films... Fans were obviously very interested in seeing how both films would pan out and would go to see both. Um, some people said that the box office take for the films wasn't that high because they were competing with each other. Um, and so in that time, they would then, you know, with View to a Kill, they would start to look to shift and go to an, a younger Bond and they would look to Timothy Dalton. And Timothy Dalton, interestingly enough, was originally considered as a replacement for Bond way, way back earlier, years earlier, back in the late 1960s when they were casting George Lazenby for On Her Majesty's Secret Service and before they cast Roger Moore. But Timothy Dalton was too young at the time. They believed the producers felt that he was a little too young and didn't think that he be um, a great, um, great option. And uh, so Timothy Dalton would step in and he would do two Bond films. And I am a fan of the Timothy Dalton Bonds. I think that he, in a lot of ways, brought a, um, a certain, a certain darkness back to the character that had been lost with Roger Moore. Um, and so he did kind of remind you a little bit of the kind of Sean Connery Bond character. So I think that it was good. The problem with the, the Timothy Dalton films, I think to some extent is that they were still trying to live off of the, the history of Bond and the Ian Fleming stories. And they weren't really focusing on the film and the, the changes in the film industry. And so when you look at that era of that time frame with the films he would do, Living Daylights and A License to Kill, you have to realize that there were film series at the time, things like um, like the Rambo series with Sylvester Stallone or the, the Terminator movies and the, the films that Arnold Schwarzenegger was making, and you look at the movies, in particular Die Hard, the Bruce Willis films. Uh, a lot of these films that were being made, and even True Lies with, um, with Arnold Schwarzenegger as well, there were a lot of these very action sequence films that were coming out in this time frame that were uh, very successful, but they were really pushing the ac action sequences to a new, a new level and, and taking them in a different way. And I think the Bond films were still trying to ride on the laurels of the past and the, the original stories and the way that they were being kind of told, and it, they didn't have a, a freshness or a newness to them. So... That sort of suffered or struggled them, and that sort of meant the films didn't do as well, and so they would sort of shift away from that, and they would run into some legal issues, and they would stop doing Bond for a number of years. There were a lot of issues with with getting um, getting James Bond um, back onto the big screen, and around this time, you also had Pierce Brosnan showing up, and Pierce Brosnan was an actor who they originally really wanted to replace Roger Moore, but um, they ended up with Timothy Dalton. And one of the reasons for that was because Pierce Brosnan was doing a TV series called Remington Steel, and he was contractually obligated. And so there was a lot of press that they were going to end uh, Remington Steel, and and Pierce Brosnan would be available to do Bond. And that created a lot of churn and a lot of interest in the media around the idea of this Pierce Brosnan character. And that would then turn to the producers who were making Remington Steel to think, oh, maybe there's life in this series because we've got all this press on this actor. So they, they renewed Remington Steel and he got stuck doing that. So they ended up moving to, um, to Timothy Dalton. And so you would then have a... Um, 
a lull in years because of some of the legal issues that they had over the Bond series and the film. There were very many, many, many production studios involved in James Bond, and there were a number of different people involved in the productions and the, the relationships between um, Harry Saltzman and Cubby Broccoli had become strained and had there and Cubby Broccoli had basically taken over the film series and there was a lot of financial issues and, and dramatic stuff going on between the producers that caused a rift between them and you know to sell out and split up and all that stuff and so there was a lot of those things that happened that impacted the series and so by the 1990s there was a, a big lull in the bond films for a while and then they would come back with with pierce brosnan stepping into the into the series into the 1990s and he would do his own number of films he would do you know i think he did kind of you know a good kind of you know, five films or so i guess he did you know golden eye which was a really good i really do think it's a it's one of the strongest bond films um as well as things like um uh, you know um Gosh, they're all uh, striking a blank right now. But there were a whole bunch of um, of uh, of uh, Pierce Brosnan films that were very successful. Um, and uh, you know, he did Tomorrow Never Dies, and he did uh, successful films. They were um, being churned out every few years, and they were doing very well. Uh, but he also was kind of getting a little older, and so they would look to kind of switch him out as well. And then, obviously, Daniel Craig came in and, and again, would re reignite the series in a, a totally new way. But they would go back to the original Casino Royale for his first film. And that was a very, uh, again, a very innovative, interesting way to do that, to kind of go back to the original Bond story and, and kind of tell it. And then they would start to branch off into these kind of new stories because a lot of the Bonds, if you think back to the history of the Bond films, really up until Pierce Brosnan, probably most of those films, um, even the the uh, world is not enough, was um, based on a, um, a uh, they were based on Ian Fleming kind of, angles or stories or, or mentions their films would would start to shift um after um probably after roger moore really they started to kind of shift into stories they'd run out of all they basically covered all the bond all the the ian fleming bonds and so they needed to kind of come up with new stories and so they started to shift those but there were some ties back to that but when they did um casino royale they would sort of rebirth re revisit that and then um Daniel Craig characters are uh, his characterization of Bond would kind of then move into things like um, again you'd got you know Skyfall and Spectre um, you know where you are getting um, hints and elements of the original Bonds um, so there's enough tied back to the original um, Spectre characters and villains and things like that that um, sort of gave an, an homage or a, a, a kind of a reminder of kind of the bond of, of the past which was kind of nice um so that's sort of uh the the well maybe the last one maybe we'll do a wrap-up um podcast episode to kind of conclude this kind of series but thanks for tuning into hollywood declassified and um we'll be back soon mm -hmm.